Welcome to Newhouse Impact, a collaboration between WAER and the Newhouse School of Public Communications. I'm Chris Bolt. On this episode, it's pretty hard to avoid hearing something about artificial intelligence these days. And you might wonder about the impact AI can have on all sorts of areas of our lives. One of the biggest, of course, is how it can change or manipulate all types of media. One of the things that I get really excited about and nervous about with the world of AI is its possibility, things that it can streamline, things that it can make easier. But at the same time, you're dealing with a technology that's moving at such a blistering pace that there could be many different instances where things can go off the rails. You know, one of the challenges is how do you create that healthy skepticism without paralyzing, you know, an, an audience into saying, I don't know what I can trust, so now I don't trust anything. Right. We're in a world where consuming digital content and news and information is ubiquitous. There's no other way to live and still be not under a rock. Perhaps you've had questions about whether the picture you saw or even the audio of an important figure you heard was authentic or was it AI generated? Syracuse University Newhouse School research professor Jason Davis agrees these are big concerns, but he says help is on the way. Davis is working through the Newhouse Emerging Insights Lab on ways to identify fake information thanks to a grant from the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA. We'll also hear on this Newhouse Impact from R.C. Concepcion, a collaborator on the grant and a Newhouse professor who teaches multimedia storytelling as well as being an award-winning photographer and writer himself. Davis and Concepcion both understand the concerns people have about AI, particularly in the media realm. But they also point out there are advantages and many positive uses for the various applications of artificial intelligence. They suggest, and you might not realize, we've been consuming AI-generated content in many ways for a long time. And they'll discuss a growing number of tools to ferret out just what is authentic and not, and maybe even who's trying to fool you with fake content. That's all ahead on this installment of Newhouse Impact. On this episode of Newhouse Impact, we have Dr. Jason Davis, a professor in the Office of Research and Creative Activity, and Professor R.C. Concepcion, who teaches multimedia storytelling and digital content management, and is also involved in research on emerging technologies. Uh, Jason and R.C., you've both been with us before on Newhouse Impact. And uh, Jason, you previously discussed media manipulation, and RCU provided a brief overview of AI tools such as Chat GPT and others. It's great to have you both back again, uh, as AI continues to be in the news all the time. And we're going to get into some of the uses of AI, as well as maybe potential dangers or areas of concern. First, I just wanted to find out what are you interested in now? Discuss your research a little bit. Can you explain? What led uh, to your research collaboration, Jason? Uh, yeah, you know, so I think for me, um, uh, when I was uh, kind of trying to build up the program around missing disinformation detection, uh, we had been primarily focused on the technology, on, on the AI machine learning sort of detection algorithms side of the equation. Um, but more and more as generative AI became uh, a very prominent uh, sort of an impactful phenomenon, uh, we needed more capabilities on image, image analysis, image manipula manipulation. Um, and, and that was a skill set that RC had like an incredible level to. And I have so much respect for the skill that he brings in that world. And it's you know, something that I don't have any skill in, uh, but uh, is something that was was critical. And, and so 
uh, from that, you know, initial seed of need, <laughs> I guess we we really um, recognized we had a lot of common interests and a lot of complementary skill sets. And so that really, I think, from my perspective, uh, led to what has been a, a really interesting and fun collaboration um, ever since. And how do you see it, RC? What the, what interests you? What are you sort of trying to what are the nuggets you are trying to get to in this collaboration? Well, I think that one of the things that I get really excited about and nervous about with the world of AI is its possibility, the things that it can actually do, things that it can streamline, things that it can make easier. But at the same time, you're dealing with a technology that's moving at such a blistering pace that there could be many different instances where things can go off the rails. So for me, being able to take a look at a new technology and say, all right, well, this is kind of like our new fire moment, right? So now we have this thing and it could be used to cook meals or it could be used to burn down cities. How can we harness the best of it as well as how to be able to protect ourselves from the worst possible dangers? So in that, I was really excited to get involved in the program with Jason, because I tend to look at a lot of the stuff of, oh my God, there's so many different capabilities of things that you can do. But I think that we also need to keep an equal foot on, well, how do we do that responsibly? How do we do that ethically? How do we do that in such a manner where it can assist us rather than replace us? Uh, I do think that AI is in front of us all the time now. There's commercials that are sort of posing these questions, you know, who become, when do we become self-aware? Or uh, certainly today I got three different emails that had some training around chat GPT or some other AI application. Uh, and the way that it might help solve problems is certainly sort of new terrain or new territory for a lot of us. Uh, yet I do know for a lot of people, they are fearful of what am I looking at? Is that real? What else could be manipulated? Uh, one of the areas that uh, I know you were looking into is things related to like audio or language translation applications. Can you describe what that is or what where AI creates something there or is applied in that area? I think that what you see now, or, or what's definitely getting the most coverage right now is the whole content of audio disinformation, is being able to take an AI model and train it on a specific voice pattern and take that voice pattern and then turn around and say, all right, well, how can I recreate, you know, a dignitary's voice? How do, can I create a person and make them say something that they in fact did not say? So that technology is something that's prevalent right now. You, you see it all the time and we're, you know, working on ways of being able to detect that. But one of the things that I'm really excited about in that space is the concept of using that same synthesis to be able to reach larger individuals, you know, larger blocks of people. So, for example, let's say that I work on designing content or I make a YouTube video or I have a podcast just like this one. But I'd like individuals uh, that speak French to be able to hear it in their language. Well, in that sense, we have AI systems now that can take my voice, my actual voice, and translate it into French. So now you're not just doing a dubbing where someone else is translating what it is that you're saying. 
it is being translated into French in your own voice with all of the tonality and all of the inflections that you would expect out of your own language. And it's doing a pretty good job with that. So it's now a turnkey solution. Like you can just upload a video, say, I want it to be Chinese. And sure enough, now the entire video has your own voice in Chinese. That I think from a cultural level is something that could be very impactful to share information in a native language, so to speak. You know, there's there's a certain level of comfort when, when you hear something in your own language, but within the voice of the person that's actually bringing that forward. So that's something that I'm really excited about in terms of the audio side. But then there's also sections where you talk about uh, audio manipulation. For example, like right now, we're working on three different locations and we're working with three different types of mic setups. However, now you have AI systems that can grab all of this information, analyze it, and based on what it knows about audio production and things like that, can remove hisses and clips and ums and stutters and process it so that it sounds like you're sitting in an actual studio. That's going to democratize a lot of how we communicate and how we create this content and allow more players to get into that space, which I think is a great thing. Yeah, and and, and I would add uh, on the industry side, um, you know, if you think about the value of that proposition, if I'm a the leader of a global company, I've got workforce all over the world speaking different languages, coming from different cultures, right? The ability for me to give a town hall talk to my global team um, in their own languages at the same time in real time, not a not a, a translation, not a dub, not a, a subtitled version where you know the the original language gets like the 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 perfect display and everyone else gets kind of second tier interaction. Right. You get that that real kind of ability to deliver your message in the perfect channel to that all of your group at once. Uh, that that's something that is new and powerful. And, and those are the kinds of moments that I try not to lose uh, with the opportunity of AI while still trying to balance the fact that, yeah, that can also be used in, in a horribly malicious way to do, you know, something very similar, um, but for all the wrong reasons. So yeah, certainly you understand people's fears for saying, am I hearing the real thing or not? Uh, what do you say to somebody like that? Or, or where is research going to say, that's a possibility now we need to know or we need to have at least some degree of comfort uh, over and above just trusting the messenger. Yeah. So, so I would say, you know, first, you know, please hold help, help is on the way, um, <laughs> but it's not here yet. All right. So, um, you know, one of the challenges is how do you create that healthy skepticism without paralyzing, um, you know, an, an audience into saying, I don't know what I can trust. So now I don't trust anything. Right. We're in a world where consuming digital content and news and information is ubiquitous. There's no other, you know, really no other way to live and still be not under a rock. So um, I think that is something that is really 
um, you know, a, a critical moment is how do we do that? How do we deliver those tools? Because I will say, right, I mean, we have detection capability that is actually really good at detecting fake audio, right? Or synthetic audio like this. They know when these are generators. In fact, we can tell not only is it synthetically generated audio, we can also tell that it, what audio generator was used to make it, what tool was used, right? That forensic back sort of tracing. But, um, you know, how do we get those tools into the hands of the public? Um, or is that even the right delivery mechanism? Or do these need to be tools that go into the platforms that we're consuming our content through, right? The 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 Facebooks, the, the TikToks, the X's of the world, right? Are they the ones who need to be to be getting these tools and 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 sort of applying them over the content that they're distributing. And this is where the Wild West, you know, of the of the situation is really uh, happening. So uh, it's it's going to get messy before it gets clean. And, um, gotcha. you know, but I will say help is on the way. But uh, until then, a healthy dose of skepticism is is your best defense. How related is what we've just been talking to to the concerns in the actors and writers strikes that we recently went through? where people were worried that, you know, if you have Brad Pitt's voice or uh, Taylor Swift's voice and you can recreate those things and then you've sort of taken away their potential for intellectual property, how related is this? Or are we kind of talking about two different things? Yeah, I think it's absolutely related. I mean, I think that looking at it from an audio standpoint is obviously one thing. Like there's the the initial the initial look of, well, can you replicate somebody's voice and therefore they can't make business with their voice? That's certainly one thing. But the whole concept of just AI as it pertains to your likeness. Um, if you look online at any point in time, you'll notice that a lot of the stuff that's happening online is all based on uh, green screen, right? Like motion capture greens, everybody's wearing these suits and they're all, you know, fields are digitally altered and crowds are digitally altered to be able to do X or Y or Z. And right now, when an actor goes and delivers delivers their voice, it is not just their voice that they're capturing, right? They're capturing their likeness, they're capturing their movements, and these things are being stored, sometimes without their consent, in places where they could turn around and say, well, four movies later, oh, yeah, but we had so-and-so here and they did this. Let's just digitally place them here or let's just digitally sit them in this stadium or let's just digitally move them here. And there's no there's no payment. There's no economic model for that. So it's not just can this vocal performance be used, but also like their likeness, their ability, their their no one would have to go anywhere to be able to do that. And it could be just used in perpetuity. So defending against that, I thought was a very proper and a, a definitely, they had a lot of salient points when it came to that concept. It is something that could be very, very powerful to remove, right? Those industries. I mean, even think about the example that I gave where I was saying, all right, well, I can say something and then it could be translated. Well, that would mean that a lot of translators are not going to be right. doing that work anymore. So that can disintermediate these individuals as well. So it, it, it's a very, 
it's a very sensitive place mm-hmm. because this technology can create these large gaps of individuals that are not doing what they were doing just a few months prior. You know, and you know, I, th- I think we have to we have to recognize this is a disruptive, a platform disruptive technology, right? So there are going to be people who are right in the heart of this disruption. Um, I can think a lot of other industries, you know, sort of uh, PR, advertising, um, photography. Um, there's just this is going to disrupt a lot of different industries in a lot of different ways. Um, uh, that has is always the case with a disruptive technology, whether it's 3D, you know, printing or it's uh, auto, you know, sort of automated uh, or or AI, you know, driven taxi drivers. Uh, those are, you know, they're going to they're going to affect workforces in different ways. So how do we sort of identify new value propositions? Um, because we can only protect and and block for so long. Uh, I think that that's been a trend throughout history of a new technology comes on. The first sort of move is to try and slow it down, block it. Um, but it's like water running downhill. It's going, you know, the economic drivers are are sufficient that it it really does push it forward. So how do we do it in a way that, again, is like humane, ethical, um, and also provides a path to um, these disrupted workforces and and give them a new set of value and skills that they can still employ and be a part of the process. So it's it's rarely an all or nothing, uh, you know, it was all human, now it's all AI. Um, that human in the loop part of the process is is I think right now the 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 blurry middle ground that that no one sees or 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 has a full grasp of. And and that's gonna be where we find what the new equilibrium is going to balance out as but um there you know rc is exactly right that this was the moment to sort of try and create some of those guardrails um uh before again something moving at a blistering pace uh just gets away and and um and you you've lost your moment to at least try and be a part of the conversation so uh that's that's for sure uh, a critical moment um, a related concept to what we've just been talking about, maybe kind of scary, is uh, AI might be used for uh, creating synthetic personas. So maybe rather than recreating my voice in ways that are having me say things I didn't really say, coming up with almost synthetic out of nothing. Can you explain what that is and where something like that would be utilized? Yeah. So so the idea of a synthetic persona um, is, you know, that's basically a fake person, right? Fake profile. Um, you, you can envision lots of different framings for that on, in a digital landscape. What is different now, there's been lots of, there's lots of, cat, you know, the concept of catfishing or, or fake profiles has been around for, you know, since the digital movement started. What is different about the idea of a synthetic persona is that um, it takes me as a human time to go and make that profile. I have to manage that profile. I'm, I'm just misrepresenting myself, essentially, with my own agenda. A synthetic persona is something that can leverage the scale and speed of AI and generative capabilities to do that. I don't make just one fake person or three fake people that I manage. I'm making 100, 500, 1,000 at a time. And I can tune those profiles to target specific audiences so that I can use the concept of social engineering to say, all right, I know the kinds of preferences that uh, the vulnerable audience I want to target is. I'm going to make the perfect profile for them. I'm going to make 100 of them. I'm going to set up a Reddit account, 
populate it with those hundred synthetic personas, and then I'm going to suck in the humans and start a conversation. How many human hours will we waste trying to convince those kinds of synthetic personas of anything? Right. That that's wasted human capital. But more importantly, I can now direct that echo chamber in a way to start to move people from the real world into action that maybe I want to uh, to sort of induce. And that to me is is different than perhaps the idea of a fake profile before. These synthetic profiles can be done at scale and we can actually kind of create images. We can create text, video, audio, all to support the illusion that that these are real people with real lives and real background histories and stories um, and ones that we are interested in and excited about because I've already given out so many much of my personal preferences up unknowingly in, you know to the internet that you know how to tune into what I want because I've already told you I I'm pro this I'm anti that uh, right you know of this demographic, uh, all that information is is pretty easily uh, determined right now with the information we've already given up uh, willingly. Perhaps an example, maybe a very simplified one that I think I just recently saw was law enforcement using a fully created profile of somebody to trap a pedophile or a you know fraud. I mean, in this case, I think it was actually a pedophile or something where it wasn't the use of a real person. It was the use of a created person. And, you know, it's sort of fascinating that you can make that look at real enough so that somebody reacts to it. But it, is that is a sort of an example of exactly what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, you know, these are tools and they can be used, uh, you know, for good, you know, like like a like a gun, like a car. Right. They're, they're tools and, and how you use them really sort of dictates what side of the line that, sure. that they operate on. Uh, I will say, I mean, that's a really interesting scenario because on the other side of that coin, there's this concept of, of image laundering that has um, recently emerged. And that's the idea of you can take a real image, something that is an illegal image, uh, um, a, a horrible image, uh, and you can recreate that image with AI to make basically a digital copy of that. It's not a copy and it's not illegal. Uh, because it moves from, hey, this is a, a crime happening in a real world and a picture of that crime to, oh, this is just an artist rendering of what might be a possible crime. And now I've got a, a hard drive full of those kinds of images, um, but none of them are uh, criminal anymore because they are, hmm. I can prove that they have been generated by AI, right? So we, you know, this again, it, it is right now, these are the kinds of, of things that law enforcement are, are, are trying to use the tools, but they're also trying to balance being overwhelmed by the idea of, am I actually trying to help a real victim? Or do I first need to make sure that that image and that situation is, is of a real person before I go yeah. and spend a bunch of resources chasing down a digital ghost? Uh, mm -hmm. And that, you know, is, is a scary thing for, for many of them right now is like, sure. how do I make sure that I'm using resources on a real sort of human versus a digital representation of somebody that doesn't exist? You, you guys have been in this for a while. Uh, where are the guardrails or what kinds of regulations, um, best practices, et cetera, are we starting to move toward? Uh, you, you know, I, I sort of think of like the gene technology CRISPR got ahead of itself and it was sort of like we need to ban this before it goes too far. 
although now it's inching forward again. In, in a case like this, where there's all these great ideas and, and uses and advancements, also these sort of potential manipulative ways to use uh, these kinds of technologies, where should the guardrails be and who should figure them out? <laughs> I think that's, in terms that's, that's of like a billion dollar question. Yeah. <laughs> I'll let you handle that one, RC. <laughs> yeah. And in terms of image generation and things like that, like you're beginning to see players come out in that space. I think that Adobe has been sponsoring something called the Content Authenticity Initiative or the CAI. Um, the Content Authenticity Initiative is creating this kind of chain of provenance on images where when someone takes an image, it has this seal of something that says, this is a real image that was taken from this and it's going and that seal kind of follows the image and it follows the trail and it gets to a spot where there's a certain level of trust that you have when you know that these images are in that space. I would argue that there's there's also some of that stuff happening on the video side where there is this kind of prominence. So you're beginning to see the provenance as be one way to be able to kind of just go, all right, well, let's level set this entire thing. And now can somebody duplicate that or can somebody change that or modify that, remove provenance? Um, I would think that it's only a matter of time, right? However, one of the things that I am curious about, and this is very, you know, far-fetched is does all of this synthetic media change our behavior patterns of what we consume right like we turn around and we say all right well if what we do right, the pictures that we see and the things that we look at are not real then we're not going to be able to trust anything it's like well we were kind of halfway there in some respects already when we take a look at magazines, they're largely airbrushed. When we take a look at movies, they're not documentary, they're special effects. Uh, we know that all of these different things have been manufactured, even social media, right? My sitting here taking a picture of uh, my lunch in this one specific area ignores the fact that there's a crying baby, ignores the fact that, you know, I have negative $10 in my bank account. There's all of these different things that we kind of curate for this illusion of reality. So our belief in that stuff is already kind of tenuous. So does our consumption of all of the social media just get us to a point where, and I, and I don't know if this is a good or a bad thing, but does it get us to a point where we just don't believe any of it and we fully commit to that? And instead, we start believing these moments that are happening right now, we start valuing the concept of live. We start valuing the concept of it's happening at this, like I am talking to you, Chris, live on this thing. And people start looking for those moments. Um, Does that create a different way to be able to communicate with other people? You know, I, and, and that's where the glass half full comes in for me. It's like, well, what does that future look like? You know, in, in a future where we get up these days and we're bombarded by all of these images already, then does our attention go to something else that we find that's a little bit more visceral, more, more real, for the lack of a better word? 
And I, so I would argue, Chris, that, I mean, the first thing we need to do, get to is transparency. Like that would be a step in the right direction. Like just being able to be like, yes, this is synthetic or, or no, this is not synthetic. And again, with full disclosure. And now there's a couple of reasons people want to hide whether they're using AI or not. Part of that is a stigma right now that you used AI is like cheating. Uh, that will go away if it hasn't already. Right. Um, but then there's the malicious use of AI where people are trying to hide their intentions and they're also uh, trying to sort of leverage the capabilities to do things in a malicious way and they're never going to sort of allow transparency to occur but we are seeing a lot of the platforms the ai you know open ai uh you know sort of whether it's their image generators dolly or or adobe is another great example of of them trying to install these watermarks these um indicators to create that sense of transparency um, and as soon as we have that in place, then I can at least make an informed decision about whether I accept. Yep. Okay. This is, you know, this is, was, this book was written by AI, but I'm going to read it. And if I enjoy the book, then do I care if it was written by AI or a human? Right. As RC pointed out, the right. movie, uh, the movie is not real. I'm more than comfortable suspending my belief to engage in that and be entertained by it. And I don't care that it wasn't real, that it was entirely staged. That was the point, but I knew that going in. And so it makes it okay. What we don't like as humans is when we are fooled and we, when we, well, then we recognize it, right. Or, oh, you know, that, that, that is a, a feeling where we get uh, a lot of these kind of emotional responses to like, I don't like it. I don't like it because it, it tricked me. It fooled me. Um, right. If we start with transparency, at least we're making an informed decision about whether we engage with that kind of content or not. What I would liken that to, just as we're talking, thinking about it, is right now, information on social media is very, very suspect, and I, that might even be kind. But one of the ways you do consume that information, I believe, is you trust the source, if you know it's the source. And not that this is the only one, but for example, if it's a tweet or a X, what are we calling them? Um, you know, some message that has the New York Times associated with it, and you can think it's their actual reporting. Maybe you give that a little more credit than if you don't even know the source, or we've already talked about sort of the echo chamber of the ideas and people report on what others reported on who was reporting on something that somebody else reported on. And, you know, that has no veracity at all. Um, this sort of starts to blur that, though. But maybe what you're saying is, is that credible sources who are as transparent and you can continue to see they are build trust you trust it a little more doesn't have to go to the all live version that you were talking about rc yeah and i will say so you know on our on our uh, sort of department of defense program we focus on on sort of trying to combat mis and disinformation uh, of all kinds and some of that is human generated as you just described some of that now is being accelerated augmented by these sort of generative ai capabilities but we really break it down into three levels the first was detection you know, could we just detect, was this synthetic or human generated? Did it come from a camera or an AI generated model? Is it, you know, sort of uh, manipulated? Is it a paste splice? Is it, you know, sort of what, you know, is it been tampered with or is it genuine? That's the first level. The next level is attribution. Is it coming from who it says it's coming from? Or more importantly, if it is synthetic, what was the tool that was used to create it, right? Trying to attribute the, the generation source of that of that synthetic content. And then the third one is characterization, right? Is it malicious? If it's malicious, 
Who is the target? What is the intent? That kind of, of, of what I would call sentiment analysis um, or the semantics of, of the, the mis and disinformation. And that's a really rich um, piece of information to make decisions around. However, it's the hardest to get to because mm-hmm. we don't know. We don't know, as you just described, the whole chain uh, of sort of events that led up to that piece of information coming into our hands in right. front of our eyes. So, um, but, you know, we start with detection. If if that is, you know, got something fishy about it, now it could be completely synthetic and manipulated, but it's a cat meme. Is that concerning? No, but it rings all the detection bells that you would expect. That's a false alarm, right? But is it coming from the source it says it's coming from? If it's manipulated and it says it's coming from the New York Times and it's not, and we do have detection tools that can make that sort of uh, determination, now we're getting somewhere about there's something really going on here that may be malicious in its intent. And then we can go down to that characterization level. Maybe that's a human in the loop kind of moment of saying, hey, what are they trying to do here? Is there a call to action? Is there some propaganda statement in here that has a real impact in the real world? Uh, and an, you know something that we need to take action on as a homeland security kind of moment. That's a critical moment and a, and a decision point that we really need to be able to get to um, uh, if we want to keep this tool within some sort of uh, you know reasonable guardrails, as we described earlier. There's a bill actually you were just talking about where if a uh, book say was written entirely using some type of generative AI that uh, the New York State Assembly is considering a bill that would require it be disclosed. So this is exactly the kind of thing you're talking about in terms of like a regulatory way to approach that. Yeah, and, and so I know I I've read that bill. Um, and the one challenge with it is if you dive into the details of that uh, bill is the definitions. And this is one of the challenges of the semantics of just like, how do we define what is AI? What is manipulated? What is using AI? Because the definition of uh, that's that's within the bill by that definition, a book that I use Microsoft Word spell checker on is actually an AI modified manipulated document. So I have to fully disclose that my, you know, sort of book has used, there's almost nothing that isn't going to fall into the category of using that AI as, or some version of AI as a uh, part of that book's creation. So have we done anything when we say, okay, now we've made it so that everything is AI uh, sort of influenced or generated partially influenced or partially generated, um, we haven't gotten anywhere, right? We haven't we haven't actually addressed the thing we wanted to do. Right. Uh, and sometimes, you know, we want to say something out loud, like we're doing something, but without the ability to sort of actually tangibly regulate and enforce um, those kinds of, of guardrails, they really are more just sort of, um, you know, idealistic words and, and mm-hmm. they don't have any actual, you know, actionable uh, capabilities that we can sort of really used to affect what we're trying to really do um, as opposed to just <laughs> say something quickly and out loud. Uh, sometimes I think that's uh, more the purpose than <laughs> productive uh, legislation. Well, certainly in any body like the state assembly or Congress or something, it, they're very reactive bodies. So they see this problem, you know, sort of their arena is to find some way to start to rein it in um, uh, 
you know, with legislation or what have you. Uh, one of the things that occurred to me, because as you mentioned, AI is kind of all over the place already, and we don't think of it that way. I mean, many things that a smartphone does, predictive typing, and it, you know, it predicts the next word you're supposed to type in your text message. Those things, I guess, would you agree with me that they're that's a type of AI? It's machine learned, and it you know figures it out. Um, are, are we entering into a place where people just need to start being more aware of this and having almost like for years we've talked about media literacy? like have some sense of where information is coming from, is some of this onus going to be on the public to say, you have to think about it a little more than just accepting what you're seeing or reading or hearing? Absolutely. I mean, I think that I've always been a very big proponent of digital literacy. I think that we are at a spot where there is so many different things that are digital in nature that we don't really think about uh, the rules or norms or how we address things or how we take a look at things in this kind of digital space that no one's ever really sat down and took a look at the book. Uh, it, 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 I keep thinking about it as almost kind of like um, older generations are probably very familiar with like uh, Emily Post, like this entire concept of these books of manners and things that you right. need to do or not do. It's like it's we're at a spot where we need to be able to have these general understood terms out there for people to get their head around and and start learning these new behaviors. And unfortunately, I think that one of the biggest problems is that a it can sometimes be a little complex. B, it is moving at an incredible pace. And C, we lack translators. We don't have a lot of individuals in the public space that turn around and say, all right, well, this is what an LLM is in AI and how it's applied to something, right? We tend to either over-explain it or over-technicalify it. And now individuals' eyes roll into the back of their heads and they glaze over and they're like, ah, I can't deal with this. But if we were to turn around and go, well, this is why it's interesting, right? The, this whole baby brain concept. And if you could do it with this, then how cool would it be for you to do this? A different way of explaining it, right? If we could just talk to individuals and make it conversational, make it easier to understand, I think that we can change how people perceive it and get people to adopt it in such a manner that it can create these... uh these rules for understanding it and judging it and measuring against it. Let, let me finish up by asking each of you, what's your level of concern in terms of the balance between the possibilities uh, and, you know, efficiencies and, you know, making things better, solving problems, et cetera, and the concern that a lot of people might either not understand or take the time to understand or, you know, nefarious uses for mis or disinformation. Jason, let's start with you. So my humble opinion is it's going to get messier before um, it gets uh, you know tidied up. And that's just, it is the wild west right now. And I think we have a, a good roadmap to look back on when social media uh, first came on the scene. You know, it's been almost, what, 20, almost 20 years now. But when that first came out, there was no 
roadmap. There was no book as, as RC just laid out so beautifully. And that, that's a, a great analogy of how, you know, what, how do we, how do we manage this new sort of entity in our lives? And, um, you know, we start with fear because that's an easy, easy place to start for most people. Um, and then we get to usually what is an irrational fear because it's easy to grow fear. It's hard to tamp it down. And I think that's where we're headed right now is this sort of irrational fear. Um, and then we get to a state where we start to get some more metrics around things, some rationale, some numerical value uh, of like, hey, this is uh, this model is bias. Well, bias in what way? By how much? How many percent bias is it? Now I can start to say, is it 1% or is it 80%? Because those are different, right? And I manage them differently in terms of a risk and in terms of my willingness to use that or not use that, right? So that's those are the kinds of things where I, I think we are going to have to go through that cycle um, where things, and I will tell you, Chris, uh, what worries me the most is we are in the first U.S. election cycle that has these generative AI capabilities available to a large number of the public. Um, that is going to be a pressure test uh, for not just like AI, but for democracy um, and our understanding of how we're going to uh take this tool and incorporate it into really important societal decision-making points. Um, this is going to be happening around the globe. This isn't a U.S. centric problem, right? Or not problem, but situation. Uh, every country in the world, right? You know, the internet is all around the world, right? So generative AI is available to everybody. That's a beautiful democratized thing. It also means that the problem can't be tamped out in one region or, or another. This is something that as a, globe we have to figure out together but um again we are about to go through these pressure tests um and i think election cycles are probably going to be the first place we see these um guardrails or lack of guardrails exposed um as we move forward so i'm a, I, i'm i'm worried about the next year um i'm hopeful on the other side of that uh that you know we'll start to figure it out from there it'll create a great case study <laughs> Yes, let's hope. Let's hope with a happy ending. Yeah, right. RC, where are you in terms of balancing the intrigue of the possibilities versus the concern of the, I don't know, maladies? I th I'm. I am of a opinion that I tend to, for as much as I do work on the negative side of it, I, I'm very hopeful for it. To be honest, I think that one of the biggest, one of the biggest things that that keeps me hopeful is that for as much as we talk about technology and science and all of these kinds of things, I always tend to look at everything from a lens of as a Latino male, right? Who works in academia, who came from poor first-gen college student, right? And I always look back at my, the people around me in that space. And I say to myself, well, there are so many different individuals that by socioeconomic status, by education status, by all of these other things that aren't even a part of this conversation, right? There's all of these different blocks of society that just don't get to take part in technology. And one of the things that I get so excited about is that these concepts, the things that we talk about, the tools that come out here allow people to paint without having to go to France to paint. That has the power to unlock so many different ideas. And it creates this kind of 
uh, it creates this cultural difference where we sit around and we talk about, well, is the process the most important part or is the idea the most important part? And what happens if we then become a world of all of these realized ideas, or we have these ideas of these groups of individuals that we've never, that have never had a chance to enter the, to enter the marketplace of ideas. So how does that help? How does that uh, diversify or sweeten or engage a higher order of conversation? I think these tools have the capacity to be able to do that. I think that if we have the right translators in that space, if we have the right evangelists out there sharing this stuff, we have the right people doing this, we can get more people involved in the process of having these conversations with these tools. Very interesting. All right. Well, Jason Davis, RC Concepcion, thanks for joining us on Newhouse Impact. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Chris. Thanks for listening to Newhouse Impact, a collaboration of WAER and the Newhouse School of Public Communications with the help from the office of Dr. Regina Luttrell. Find out more about Newhouse programs and research at newhouse.syr.edu slash research. And you can hear more episodes of Newhouse Impact on our website, waer.org. I'm Chris Bolt. Thanks for listening.